This podcast is sponsored by ID90 Travel, an airline's one-stop shop for your employees' past travel reservations, no-fee interline discount hotels, rental cars, and cruises. Skip the hassle and high cost of maintaining antiquated past ticketing and travel discount systems with ID90 Travel's modern, all-online, all-in-one platform. Rarely has a 1% profit margin ever looked so good, but for Korea's Asiana, 1% in its second quarter was a ray of golden light, because the year before that, the number was a negative 5%. Yeah, everything is relative. And Asiana's chief rival, Korean Air, also saw a strong improvement. In fact, Korean's 6% operating margin was downright respectable. Yeah, it was up from essentially flat the year prior. In fact, among wide-body carriers that have reported their second quarter results so far, Korean and Asiana had two of the most improved second quarters in the world. Hawaiian, by the way, was another one. So have the Korean carriers put their problems behind them? Oh, no, I'm afraid it's never that simple. Well, it never hurts to ask. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President at Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We'll dive deeper into the Korean conundrum, but not too deep because we've got a lot to cover in our last episode before our two-week hiatus. We'll check in on JAL and on the pond, LATAM, Jet Airways, Air Berlin, and more. Plus, we'll talk about Delta's new enhancement to its premium cabin. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. So Korean Air and Asiana did much better in Q2 this year than last year. But I know from reading Airline Weekly that this was mostly the result of an external force. Yeah, an external force last year, actually, that made the comparisons very easy this year. Last year, uh, they were dealing with MERS, the virus that caused a big scare. I, I mean, the, the scare was worse in terms of impact on, on the airline industry than, than the virus actually was. Uh, and, and so essentially it, it came down to that. Just, just a really bad second quarter last year uh, that made it easy to improve a lot this year. We've talked about the plight of the Koreans before, and this is all outside of MERS. Uh, the Chinese carriers represent an 800-pound gorilla that seems to be eating their lunch daily. Cargo has waned, and competition abounds elsewhere in Asia and in Korea itself, but they have nonetheless survived. My question would be, what are they doing right? Well, uh, you know, some of the same things that that always worked there. You know, Seoul remains a, a great hub in China there, uh, you, you know, Seoul basically has one airport. I mean, there's another one, Gimpo, but it's it's not like in Tokyo where you have the airport split issue, uh, you know, much more evenly. Uh, although everything's gradually shifting over to Haneda, you know, two robust airports there with sort of all the um, all, all the negative impact on network effects that that implies. Korea, this one giant airport, you know, which which works well as a hub. Um, and has always sort of been this, this, you know, gateway into and out of East Asia, especially China. So that's still true, even with all the new flights overflying Seoul between China and, and other parts of the world. And, you know, Korea in particular has, has a rather robust aerospace division. Lots of airlines have have sort of non-flying units, but Korean, uh, you know, more than others, has this giant division uh, that makes parts, uh, that performs maintenance and so forth. And uh, it happens to make a lot of money. I mean, it, it, you know, it put up, what, I think, a 13 percent margin during the quarter. So that obviously bringing up the average for the company. 
Tell me more about the internationalization of Haneda. You know, why are we talking about a airport in Tokyo that's affecting these two Korean carriers? Yeah, well, it's it just becoming more of a competitor. You know, Tokyo, as as I mentioned, does have those those two airports. You just asked about Haneda. The other, of course, being Narita, which is the one that, uh, although it's it has long been less busy than Haneda, it's the one that most global travelers usually knew coming from long haul because it's the only one where the long haul flights used to operate from. But Haneda has been liberalized. The more and more of the long haul flights are operating from there. Uh, you know, in fact, there's there going to be some more competitive long haul flights from Haneda to the U.S. coming uh, pretty soon. Basically, Haneda has gotten better. Uh, and it's become a more formidable competitor uh, against Seoul because, see, Haneda is the more convenient airport to central Tokyo. So in terms of short-haul flying, it's what always worked the best, but you couldn't have the long-haul flights they're connecting with it. And so j- just something that the, the Japanese carriers always, always struggled with, but now on the long-haul flights, more and more at least, into the airport where you have all this very robust short haul network. And so, yeah, Haneda just kind of looks a lot more like Seoul. Uh, So that, in addition to, as I mentioned, just sort of all the the Chinese carriers overflying Seoul, offering more and more uh, nonstop options between secondary and tertiary Chinese cities, for that matter, and uh, other secondary and tertiary cities in the world, uh, all of it impacts Seoul. And uh, Seoul, therefore, is getting squeezed between Japan and China, I guess. Um, Has Korean Air overinvested in jumbo jets? Well, uh, I mean, look, they have 8380s and 747-8s, a rare airline with with the Dash 8s, although not the only respectable airline. I mean, Lufthansa has some of them. Uh, and kind of when you look around the world, I mean, you see Emirates, of course, you know, on its own plane, you, you know, in terms of just having ordered 100 something A380s. But generally speaking, these are not the jets that airlines seem all that about, uh, you know, Dreamliners and A350s. These are the next generation wide body aircraft in terms of the ones that are already flying that have airlines real excited, you know, planes that aren't too big. Uh, that aren't too hard to fill, but have very good range capability. You know, it, it used to be decades ago that if you wanted to fly really far, uh, you needed a really big airplane. Uh, and the problem with that is that uh, as you increase distance, you actually have less demand on routes, uh, you know, but that was just technologically the way you had to do it. Nowadays, you can fly a really long distance with a plane that's not all that big. And yeah, Korean Air does indeed have those jumbo jets that, uh, I mean, you know, we'll see if there's some kind of a resurgence in demand for them going forward. But but at the moment, uh, they're in the minority. All right. Staying in that neighborhood, Japan Airlines is going the opposite direction of the Korean carriers. JAL's operating margin in Q2 was 7%, and that was down from 12% the year before. Yeah, and that's despite the, the yen strengthening again, uh, which generally is, is a good thing for airlines, at least on the the cost side, um, JAL just faced a lot of revenue pressure. Uh, you know, first of all, Japan is one of those markets where you have these these fuel surcharges that are that are tied to fuel price movement. So when fuel drops, uh, the surcharges automatically drop. Uh, now, obviously, airlines around the world, have, you know, have have uh, revenue declines that are related less directly to the fuel price declines because you know they've increased capacity and that just pushes down fares. But you know, in, in Japan, it is. A more direct relationship, uh, you know, more than that uh, and, and less of 
sort of a technicality is is uh, just a weak outbound demand. Uh, and again, that's something that that is, you know is surprising in the context of a strengthening yen. You know, their international passenger revenues fell nine percent. You know, it was a twelve percent decline to to Europe. Uh, so that's you know, related to the terrorism fears and all of that. Chinese routes a twenty four percent drop in uh, Q two revenues. You know, five percent fewer passengers. Even though JAL had increased its ASK capacity, uh, 5%. So just a hugely negative trend there in terms of uh, Chinese revenues, uh, which is surprising because, uh, you know, nothing has changed in terms of the fact that China and Japan for the past few years have had reasonably decent relations, you know, good demand, Chinese visitors still increasing to uh, to Japan. So you say, what's going on? Well, the thing is, everybody knows that. And there's just been a massive spike in uh, in seat capacity between China and Japan. So despite all the d- demand, uh, well, there's also all the supply and add it all up and just uh, a real negative impact on revenues there as uh, really throughout the network. JAL's rival, ANA, also had disappointing results, a 4% operating margin in Q2. That was down just slightly from last year, uh, but it's pretty remarkable how poorly these airlines are doing when ANA had a 16% drop in fuel costs. Yeah, uh, you know, they grew a lot. Uh, they grew a lot abroad in particular. And, uh, you know, just, just uh, international and in particular long haul flying is just not uh, the cash cow that it was several years ago with, with a, a slowing global economy. Uh, you know, it, it's unit revenues, by the way, declined both, both internationally and domestically. But it was worse internationally in terms of the declines. And so when that's where the focus of your growth is, you're going to have a hard time doing really well. So, yeah, another airline where uh, despite some some nice cost trends, just um, really weak revenue trends. Moving on to South America, which is an adventuresome place lately. Latam is treading water as they broke even in the second quarter. But sometimes treading water is a good thing. Is that the case here? Yeah, you know, in in. Latin America, certainly deep South America. I think for a long time, a lot of people have been trying to see, you know, where's the bottom, uh, talking especially about Brazil, but, uh, you know, farther north, certainly, uh, you know, Venezuela, Colombia, where Latam has, has a lot of exposure. So yeah, you know, with some signs that things are maybe, uh, maybe plateauing, uh, that, you know, the, the parachute has opened, so to speak, uh, slowing the declines, if, if, if not actually yet turning things in a, in a clearly positive direction, that, that would all be uh, very good news for, for Latam. Latam, by the way, uh, very exposed to something else that uh, you know we were talking a moment ago about uh, Korean and Asiana. Uh, didn't mention it this time, but hard to talk about the Korean carriers without mentioning cargo. Latam, another of the airlines in the world that's uh, very exposed to cargo. Uh, among passenger airlines, it's always had you know, one, one of the heavier exposures. Not as much... Uh, uh, post-merger. Tom didn't have as much as, as the lawn side did. But anyway, a lot of exposure there. And when you have global cargo markets under as much pressure as what as they are, uh, you know, hard to have that kind of exposure that they have and, and not really feel it. That, by the way, Jason, is, is related to, you know, we talked about new aircraft technology a moment ago. Uh, you basically have this side effect that these planes that are, that are great in terms of, 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 uh, you know, passenger 
revenues, kind of these right size, new wide bodies. They have what's ostensibly a good thing for cargo, which is a lot of space in the belly. Uh, so, you know, whereas a 767 didn't have very much cargo capacity, a 787 Dreamliner has nice cargo capacity. Uh, the problem is it's put all this new capacity into the marketplace, uh, which has just outpaced demand. So all airlines are feeling it. But you know, it doesn't matter too much if you're not all that exposed to cargo. Whereas if you are a lot very exposed to cargo, uh, that that's uh, certainly a problem. Uh, and so uh, Latam, like all airlines in that region, you know, waiting to see if the recent strengthening of currencies, for example, places like Brazil, is a trend that continues. You know, if the economy in Brazil uh, turns itself around. That would all be very positive. But Latam you know, wasn't just waiting for that. They took matters into their own hands and uh, they cut capacity in Brazil 14%, kind of reallocated it to other places in their network uh, where, where things are better. Places like Argentina, which has, uh, you know, after many, many years of being weak, is now actually a, a relative bright spot in, in, in South America. Moving over to India, Jet Airways posted a 5% operating margin. That's rather paltry compared to Indigo's 15%, but Jet at least improved revenues, something that Indigo didn't do. Is that a promising sign for Jet? Sure. You know, you, you look for any sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it green shoots, hate to use the, uh, the, the cliche. And so, so sure, um, Jet has been very much a boom-bust airline throughout its history. It'll do real well for a little while, and then it'll just have these awful uh, – uh, quarters and 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 entire years, uh, so so sure better you know better an improvement than the than the other way around. Although you with them you always want to see confirmation of that in subsequent quarters to see if it's if it's really a trend uh, or just a decent quarter. Uh, you know they are um, partly owned by Etihad. It's uh, 24% owned by them, and so like all the airlines in that family, they kind of have to do their part to funnel traffic into Abu Dhabi. You know, in their case, kind of at the expense of of their own hubs in in Delhi and Mumbai. Hard to quantify how important that is, but uh, uh, you know, never good when you can't make all your commercial decisions as an airline for your own benefit you know when you're when you're worried about a, a shareholder like that you know india very competitive market market where supply is growing very quickly but so is demand uh and and, and all kinds of, of opportunity there uh you know it's it, you know, tempting i think to kind of lump india and china together in terms of these you know massive, uh, massively populated country with all kinds of opportunity. But uh, the, the penetration of air service is, is still even much, much lower in, in India uh, than it is in China. So, uh, you know, all, all kinds of opportunity for, for whoever can figure out how to harvest it. Okay. I'm looking at the profitability rankings on page six in this week's issue. Uh, these are airlines which were the most profitable in the second quarter of those who've reported so far. Of the top 10 carriers, eight are U.S. carriers. Number eight was Ryanair. And number four was neither a U.S. carrier nor Ryanair. Who was it? I know you know the answer, but I'll give you some <laughs> hints anyway. Uh, I know you know because you wrote it. Uh, this airline isn't in Europe or North America. This airline has about 60 planes. This airline is dabbling in low-cost, long-haul flying. Yeah, we're talking about Cebu Pacific, 24% operating margin. Uh, and, and that is not a, a one-off. This is an airline that has been doing well uh, uh, for, for a while and, and in fact, uh, continuing to to improve. You mentioned, by the way, the, the low-cost, long-haul flying. Um, you know, that, although 
almost certainly not the driver of the profits, seemingly at least not doing badly. I mean, they they're, they recently ordered two more A330s. So and, you know, when you have an airline that's doing as well as they're doing, uh, you know, probably not too many things are going awfully for them. You basically said it most profitable airline in the world outside the U.S. for that quarter. Um, just very, very low costs in, in a region with a ton of, of, of what's called VFR traffic, visiting friends and relatives, you know, migrant traffic. Essentially, there is no other country in the world that sends uh, as many of its the people uh, on a percentage basis of its population abroad, as does the Philippines. And so if you can be the lowest cost carrier in a market like that, with just huge volumes of people going abroad to work uh, and then coming back home, uh, you can do pretty well. So it's a decent environment for that. And they have executed very well. Staying with the profitability list, let's look at the two at the bottom, both with a negative 6% operating margin in Q2. One is not so surprising, and we've talked a lot about it, Air Berlin. I don't want to steer your answer, Seth, but they are losing money with fuel being so cheap and in the second quarter, which is supposed to be a time when European airlines get well. Yeah, usually the second best quarter of the year. Uh, that may end up being the case for Air Berlin, but, but putting up a negative a, uh, 6% operating margin in what should be your second best quarter is, is, is obviously you know, not, not going to get the job done in terms of turning things around. Yeah, they're another member of the Etihad family. And uh, and one that just ha- has never really found its its groove. I mean, dating long back before Etihad was involved, uh, you know, never really ha- had that moment when it put up outsized margins. Uh, you know, some airlines kind of have those, you know, at least years here and there. Just just kind of always looking for a reason to exist. It never had the lowest costs, never had any particular network niche. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, when you don't have either very low cost or very robust revenues related to just something else, either a very strong global network or, you know, just a, an interesting geography, uh, you know, Alaska airlines is one that, that comes to mind as the best example of an airline that might seem to violate the rules of, you know, not the lowest cost, not the most robust, uh, global network. And yet, among the most profitable airlines in the world, but they have a great geographic niche. You know, there, there's a there's a a very successful part of of a you know of, of, of in their case the U.S. where you know where, where they're rather dominant and they do a lot of other things well too. Uh, Air Berlin, not not that kind of an airline. Now they're getting kind of into the short haul business class game, the business class like product on the short haul. You know, other airlines have been moving away from that, if anything, in, in, in Europe. An airline like SAS, uh, you know, turned itself around partly by getting rid of its short haul business class. Other airlines still have it, but certainly not the focus of where they invest. Uh, so Air Berlin, yeah, just still kind of uh, looking looking for a, a reason to uh, to exist. And uh, so far, uh, no real signs that it's turning itself around. And the other airline at the bottom of the profitability list is one we almost never talk about, Garuda in Indonesia. This is an airline for which we've been waiting a long time for it to turn the corner, but it really never has, has it? It hasn't. That awful margin that it put up, negative uh, 6% as well, just fractionally better than Air Berlin, represented one of the worst drops in the year. That was positive six, uh, five, positive 5% rather a year earlier. So uh, an 11% decline, um, you know, rough competitive environment, uh, an export 
heavy economy in, in Indonesia that's suffering like the rest of them. You know, we talked about Brazil and so forth. And so, yeah, you know, they, they, they do have these moments where, where, where things, you know, seem okay. But then here we are again, uh, capacity up uh, 14% in Indonesia. That's according to, to DOMI data um, during the quarter. So hard, hard to have a, uh, you know, a tepid economy at least slowing growth and and uh, all that capacity growth uh and not have you know the lowest cost and so forth and you know they're up against lion air you know other lower cost carriers hard to have all of that and 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 be doing all that well last item of the day delta unveiled on tuesday its new delta one suite seth could this mean that united's polaris polaris product is already obsolete before it even debuts right i mean you could envision that delta put out this uh, press release with a very big picture of a business class product with a door you know just just Ooh, uh, yeah it's what people want um if they can have it jason you and i talked back when United unveiled Polaris about the fact that there was this chance perhaps that it was already kind of a compromise. Basically, they were squeezing a few more seats uh, into the business class cabin. Uh, the the trade-off seemed to be that although they were lie flat seats, they weren't quite as wide. You know, the, the monitor was perhaps a bit smaller, but uh, the bet being that what people care most about is sleep. And if you give them a comfortable enough lie flat seat, they'll be happy with that. And if you could squeeze in a few more seats in your competitors could give you a revenue edge. Well, here comes Delta with, uh, with something that kind of goes the other direction. Just looking at it, it's they're They're not packing as many seats. I don't think as they can into, into the cabin. Uh, um, th- this is going to be up there with some of the best products, from what I could tell around the world. Uh, and so we'll see. Uh, United will have to be right that it can do it on volume, you know, that uh, any revenue differential in terms of what people are willing to pay each person to fly uh, each mile is going to be not all that great. And so by squeezing more seats in, they'll win with that. Um, we'll see. You know, Amer- American made a bet like that a decade ago when it decided to go with angled flat seats uh, rather than lie flat seats at the time that other airlines were going with live flat seats. In its case, it lost that bet. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if, if United can win. Uh, its seats, of course, are live flat and are state-of-the-art in other ways. Delta very clearly, uh, at least by the looks of it, does have what people see as the superior product in terms of the suite itself. All right, let's wrap it right there. Seth, thanks as always. We're off the next two weeks, so the next episode won't be until September 7th. Until then, for Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for joining us in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Got any vacation plans? No, but I do have travel plans. I'm moving from Florida to New York. That's an interesting direction. (laughs) 